This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What happens when a company has a data security breach but fails to report it? What happens when the company misleads investors by its comments about what has happened. We explore these issues and more in the Pearson Securities and Exchange Enforcement Action regarding a data breach. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox of Voice of Compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we have a um, SEC enforcement action that Matt has blogged about involving the educational publisher Pearson, and it's the second uh, SEC enforcement action involving a set of issues uh, that Matt is going to tell us about. So, Matt, what did Pearson do that uh, netted them a $1 million SEC penalty? Uh, hello, Tom. So, Pearson, the uh, education publisher and test taking system software maker of the world, uh, they had a cybersecurity breach sometime in late 20. 20- 2018, which the company then neglected to to disclose to investors for many months afterwards. And we can talk about the severity of the breach and why maybe keeping it hush-hush was not the best decision. Uh, But eventually, the breach happened in late 2018. We don't know exactly when. Uh, But the company only disclosed this breach in August of 2019, after the media had already come out and said, you know, we're going to run a story. We know that there's been a big breach. It was a big breach. Uh, so then the SEC sanctioned Pearson for failing to disclose this breach in a timely manner, failure to, um, well, not a failure, but more uh, making misleading statements to investors about the severity of the breach, and then also making misleading statements about the effectiveness of the protection measures that uh, Pearson was putting in place to keep data safe. And all of that really did not go well for Pearson. Uh, So it put out this statement with what the SEC said were several different uh, misleading and inaccurate statements. And presto changeo, we wind up with a million dollar fine. And this is the second SEC enforcement action against a company over poor disclosures of a cybersecurity incident that we have seen in the last two months, and I think we have seen others in the past as well. So clearly, this is an issue that is on the SEC's radar screen. They've got an enforcement appetite for it, and uh, we can talk about the particulars, but that's what's going on. So, Matt, can we step back and maybe explore how can a failure to disclose lead to an SEC violation? Uh, Well, that's pretty simple. If you fail to disclose a material event to investors, where they therefore are not making the best possible decisions, they're not fully informed about the company's true risks, uh, that's a violation of federal securities law. And so that's the reason for the sanction. And you know, for example, we have often seen that you could have failure to disclose a proposed merger that's actually not going to happen and everybody knows about it, 
or failure to disclose a potential litigation fallout from a large settlement looming with uh, the federal government or in civil litigation, something like that. If you're not disclosing material issues and risks to investors, then they are being misled about the true value and merits of investing in the company. And the SEC considers cybersecurity events to be just as much a material item that can be disclosed under certain necessary circumstances, just like anything else. So that's what brought us here. So what did you see in terms of disclosure controls and procedures failure by Pearson in this uh, case? It's worth discussing what the breach actually was and how did this happen. So the breach involved a Pearson product that I think is called AimsWeb 1.0. If you're in education circles, you might know this. Uh, This is a product that school districts and universities can use to record students' grades and education activities. So you have a lot of personal data of the students. And if you are the school district, that means you need user accounts with your employees. So names, titles, email addresses of employees. So you've got two piles of personal data that are getting collected by Pearson if you are using this Ames Web service to record student performance. Uh, what happened was that Pearson was running that application, Ames Web, on a server That is not a big deal. Lots of companies run applications on servers all the time. But there was a cybersecurity weakness in the server. And the maker of the server had warned companies as recently as September 2018, there is a flaw in our server that could allow external attackers to execute commands on your server and affect the data that's on the server. That is a big deal. It is a critical weakness. Please use this patch and get it patched immediately. And the web server manufacturer sent that alarm around to all of its customers, Pearson included, in September of 2018. Pearson didn't implement the patch. Uh, Eventually, by March of 2019, the FBI informed Pearson, you have suffered a major breach of roughly 11.5 million rows of student data, uh, hundreds of thousands of accounts where that compromised data included students' name, email address, dates of birth. Um, also, they, the, uh, the passwords that administrators were using, those were being scrambled. Technically, it's called hashed. They were passwords were being hashed using an outdated algorithm that the hacking world had already figured out how to decrypt that algorithm. So Pearson had several poor data defense practices that it just wasn't implementing. It didn't put in that patch. It wasn't upgrading its algorithms to keep its passwords properly secured. And it had this breach. And then finally, um, the, the FBI shows up and says, well, here's a copy of your stolen data that we already found. You've been hacked. And that was in March of 2019. And for whatever reason, Uh, Pearson decided not to disclose that breach to investors at that time in March of 2019. They even had drafted a statement later on that spring as a reactive media uh, response in case the media came asking, saying, well, we heard you had a breach from somebody else. Is that true? They'd be ready with a response to the media. But they did not disclose anything to investors until finally on July 31st of 2019, lo and behold, the media uh, 
called up Pearson and said, well, we know you've had a breach and we're going to run a story about it. So then finally, on July 31st, nearly, what is that, almost a full year, nine months after Pearson first suffered a breach and had been told by its web service providers, you might have a critical flaw. You need to do this patch. You need to do it now. And they didn't do it. Nine months later, they finally put out a statement saying that they might have suffered a breach and it might have involved unauthorized access. But we take our data protection very seriously and we have strict data safeguards. The SEC had a lot of issues with those statements because here they are talking about a hypothetical breach that, you know, maybe we had unauthorized access to data, but we take our practices so seriously when in reality, Pearson executives already knew they had suffered a breach. The FBI told us back in March. We know that a lot of data has been compromised. We know 11.5 million rows. We know hundreds of thousands of email addresses were stolen. The FBI gave us a complete copy of what was taken. And they already knew that we had been told nine months before to put in a patch, and we didn't do it. And they knew all of that. And here they are putting out this two-paragraph statement saying, well, you know, it might have happened, could be a risk, got to watch out for it, we're not really sure, but we take everything very seriously. And that just did not pass the smell test with the SEC. And we can talk more specifically about the SEC's objections, but those are the disclosure failures and the misleading statements that stuck in the craw of SEC enforcement and resulted in this uh, $1 million penalty. We'll be right back with Everything Compliance after a message from our sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Matt, you used a term that I hope now becomes uh, much more uh, uh, numerous or much more discussed, which is patch management. So I wanted to ask you, why do you see patch management as such a critical part of cybersecurity and indeed cybersecurity compliance? Uh, Because it is. Uh, And if you go... Compliance people listening to us, go and wander into your CISO's office and ask them how important is patch management. They will tell you. Uh, uh, Modern software systems are full of weaknesses, vulnerabilities, cracks in the system. Call them what you will. And it's not necessarily anybody's fault. But when we're talking about millions and millions of lines of software code in the average large organization, and the, the average large organization is also working with hundreds of, if not thousands, of cloud-based vendors providing all sorts of other interactions with your IT systems, there's enormous possibility for cracks in the system to come into existence. And as soon as they are, they need to be sealed up, just like you know, you'd seal up a crack in the roof of your house instead of having water drip in through it. So manufacturers of IT equipment, manufacturers of software, where they pay a lot of attention to these vulnerabilities, they put out patches regularly, and you, the customer, it is incumbent on you to patch these software glitches up so that you run at maximum security. Um, If you don't do this, 
then you are not being diligent in your duties of care with your software systems and all of the customer data that might be residing on them. So first off, just from a data protection perspective, you need to do this. And if you don't, you could wind up suffering an enforcement action from, say, a state attorney general who's unhappy that you violated a consumer protection law or the New York Department of Financial Services. If you're a bank in New York, um, that was the last uh, cybersecurity enforcement case, Tom, you and I talked about first title a while ago. They did something similar here where they had sloppy cybersecurity. First, they suffered a data protection uh, enforcement action from data protection regulators. Then the SEC followed up with first title with an investor disclosure lawsuit. Um, so we, I don't recall that Pearson has suffered any sort of consumer protection sanction yet from the Federal Trade Commission or state regulators or somebody else, but they did have a duty to take care of customer data. That This is what Pearson does. And Tom, if I can keep on going here, that actually is a point worth discussing at length is why is this cybersecurity failure material in the first place, according to the SEC? Well, because as they say in their settlement order, this is what Pearson does for a living. It collects data, it processes data. It's incumbent on Pearson to protect the data. And if you are not patching up the software that crunches and processes this data, that's a dereliction of your duty. And that can lead to failures. And you need to be honest with investors about this. So there's this big messy tangle of consumer protection and investor protection, but all of it can be resolved by being diligent on software patch management. And that is just clearly not what happened with Pearson here. Matt, at the end of your blog post, uh, you said this case is a good example of, quote, tricky issues in the intersection of cybersecurity and securities law, end quote. Uh, I would add that perhaps uh, compliance and internal audit uh, should be included in that phrase as well. But I was wondering if you might be able to, to really lay out for us uh, those tricky issues that you saw and what uh, intersection of cybersecurity and securities law makes this case such a powerful uh, uh, teaching tool. Well, I think what's really interesting here is that let's remember this was a disclosure and controls disclosure controls and procedures failure that parts of Pearson the IT system people the cybersecurity people they knew the depth of the problem here they knew that they had a breach they knew that they hadn't been patching the software they knew what data was stolen so one part of the company did understand what its true risks were and the disclosure control and procedures failure was that that information was then not relayed to the people who were in charge of disclosing material information to investors. And that's the, the sticky intersection that we get at here. Uh, are the people in charge of SEC disclosure rules fully in the loop with everything that is going on at the company? And if they are not, then that's going to lead to difficulties in enforcement actions like we've just seen. Um, I would say that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, this, the, this risk that a cyber event would be a disclosure issue would have been much less because you had much less of the company's value tied up in its ability to manage data and manage third-party relationships with cloud-based vendors and whatnot. Today, I think many businesses, especially service businesses, especially high-tech service businesses like Pearson, 
your whole value proposition to investors and to customers is that you are very skilled at collecting and managing data. And there's a lot of regulatory compliance issues that go on there and security risks that you have to be aware of. And you are supposed to be able to master those. And if you don't, that is something that has to be disclosed to investors so they get a full picture of it. If the security team, the cyber risk management team is not communicating fully and effectively with the disclosure team, or if senior executives sitting atop of those two are sort of intervening to say, nope, we're not going to disclose this cybersecurity event. We don't think it's material. We don't think we need to be forthright with investors. Whoever is blocking that information, you're skirting violations of disclosure controls and procedures. And that's exactly how the SEC saw it. And so they served up this $1 million fine. Um, it's worth noting, this is not a lot of money to Pearson. They routinely make hundreds of millions in net income every year. So it's a small nick, but it is a telling nick. And this is not the last time we're going to see a company have a cybersecurity incident that is big enough to be disclosed to investors and it's not getting disclosed. I, I will bet my mortgage payment. We are going to see more enforcement actions like this. So people really need to be thinking about, do we have full visibility into our cybersecurity threats? Do we know that the risks and incidents we've had, have we fully diagnosed them and understood their materiality? Um, clearly, the SEC has thoughts about that that are worth looking at, both the facts of the incident and the facts about how effective your protection measures are. You have to be thinking about both of those things and then understanding what should we disclose about an incident in a timely fashion so we can say, we told investors we had to screw up. And that's not what's happened with Pearson, and here we are. So Matt, could another uh, possible lesson be that if your business model is based on the collection and use of data, that that risk should be higher on your risk management profile, similar to Bluebell Ice Cream and uh, the their risk around food safety as well? I, I think it should be at the top. If this is what you do for a living is you collect other people's data and process it, um, <laughs> cybersecurity should definitely be, if not the number one risk, I maybe the number two. I, I really can't understand what would be a more important risk than data security if you are trafficking in data with a lot of data privacy concerns and a lot of consumer protection laws that are weighing in on you. So it absolutely should be a concern for management. Um, the board somehow should be on top of this, just like the Bluebell ice cream case where it had been incumbent on the board to think about food safety because they're a food company. Um, so should the audit committee be looking at this? Should a risk committee be looking at it? Should the full board be looking at it? I think every board would have to answer that unto itself, but both the board and management should always be thinking that cybersecurity risk, if this is your line of work, like Pearson, it should probably be risk number one. I'm hard-pressed to think of what could displace it and knock it down to number two. Well, Matt, I found this to be a fascinating uh, teaching case, uh, literally involving a teaching company on some things not to do and some things to do. Uh, any kind of closing thoughts for us on this matter? Uh, just that businesses should be thinking, number one, about how good are our data protection measures. As we are telling people, we always have the best in class because you always say that in the disclosures. Everybody does, but is that really true? And then number two, really understand what are the materiality standards for a data breach 
in my business where I should think about, okay, I have to be honest and factual with investors about what did the breach actually do? Not how it happened. You don't have to give away all your cybersecurity secrets, but you do have to say what happened, not talk about it in hypotheticals and not be vague. Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I thought it was a fascinating uh, case for us to take a look at, and I can't wait to see what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've linked to Matt's article in our show notes, so check that out. It's a fascinating case. I'll be writing about it shortly as well. I hope you'll join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I also hope you will check out our latest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, the ESG Report. The ESG Report takes a deep dive into ESG from the compliance perspective. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network or you can subscribe and have it delivered directly to your inbox by going to the FCPA Compliance Report. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.